All right. Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. I am Ted Summers from Tulsa, Oklahoma. With me, as always, is Eric Stambro from Canton, Ohio. Eric, what's up? I'm looking at you for the uh, from Tulsa and Canton. I'm watching you on the computer. True story. It's like you're in my kitchen. Exactly. We're doing a little bit different platform this time. We're trying to uh, get some stuff changed up so that we can also... uh, We had a lot of people say, you know... I don't mind listening to the podcast on um, iTunes or Google play or Spotify or wherever. Um, but I really want to see you guys. God knows why uh, nobody yeah. wants to look at me. I don't know. Nobody wants to look at Eric either, but apparently a lot of people, well, people want to look at it and want to see it on uh, YouTube. So uh, we're using a different platform this time, see how it works out. And so we didn't cause anybody any problems. We're going to do one of our most popular things, which is the question and answer stuff. So on I don't know, Sunday or Monday of this week, uh, we put out a post saying, you know, um, give us some questions on Instagram and Facebook and Eric and I will answer. And we're going to try and not answer the same ones over and over again. Um, but before we do all that, um, is it winter up there yet, dude? No, dude, it's been a beautiful, <laughs> man. 70s, 60s, 70s today, it rained, but still it was 65 degrees. I, it's going to, you know, there's no way it's going to last. It's going to drop out. But usually there have been... The last couple of years, about this time, uh, mid you know mid November, it started snowing and getting shitty. So I'm not complaining. It's been like shorts and t shirt. Uh, yeah, dude. My neighbors and people here at the lake were skiing the last couple of days, um, getting it in because they're lower in the lakes. So you got to get your boat out. So yeah, I saw Troy, or is it Troy or Trey? I saw Trey on. He was you know I guess last weekend was the last weekend he had the water boat in the water or something. I saw it on his Facebook page. Yeah, if you want to get it out, you yeah. got to get one in before the the lake level gets too low. But no, it's been great, man. We uh, yeah, it's just you know I got a kennel full of green dogs. I'm and I got a kid in a uh, in a trainer school, and him and I are just next dog, next dog, next dog, just you know doing our thing been good excellent um so i think the reason these are so popular um these episodes are we have a lot of contact with people through hrd and through the podcast and through seminars and conferences or whatever else so we have kind of a broad base of knowledge and information whether it be training or like access to like doing different things or different talking to different people so like we don't live in the little pockets that I think a lot of people are susceptible to. So um, I'm going to really try Cause I kind of have a vague remembering what we've done in the last one of these. So um, one of our, well, she was original supporter from way back in the day of working dog dry goods, Virginia Koshel. She has a couple of different questions. Um, you know, and this has come up before. In fact, I have a department that came down from a state up North that was, super concerned about dog size and they were like oh the dog has to be this big i get bids all the time um from departments wanting green dogs or finished dogs where they say hey um dog has to be this big like at, at its shoulder and it has to weigh this amount and you know this that and the other i'm like oh man right and then it has to be male has to have all of his teeth all of his nuts you know all the normal shit but um so she says, you know, what's the ideal of favorite body style for a dual purpose working dog? Do we like monster truck, hundred pound dogs, little 45 pounders, you know, somewhere in the middle, male or female? Um, basically, what's the perfect uh, dual purpose working dog? Well, um, so we still, we still both kennels, mine and yours, get those people that come in. And if you showed them, say, six dogs. Here, walk down the run and look at the dogs. They, the newer people, 
the newer guys will gravitate towards the big dog. Um, it's foolish on a business side to not have, you know, a couple decent sized dogs on there. Um, but it's funny though, because every time we do HRD, uh, as we, the very first day after the, um, after the PowerPoint, we do, uh, a, um, you know, grip checks. And then I run a, uh, environmental seated passive bite section. And every time the guy comes in with a giant dog, I'm like, first dog. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I go, I bet your next one's about 70 pounds, 65 yep. pounds. And they start laughing. <laughs> they go, hell yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, that's why I like Malinois so much. Um, I don't buy the, the midget little ones. I mean, I have had a couple, uh, I had one named Chili, who's a rock star. I love that little dude. He was probably 50 pounds. Um, he will rip your calf off your leg. Uh, but I, I like the 65, 68 pound dog. Um, they're easier on me. They're easier on the handlers. They're easier on themselves. Yeah. Lightning fast. And they still bring a huge punch. What about you? Um, there is such thing as too big and too small where the sweet spot is. I don't know. Um, in my training group, um, everybody's heard me talk about, or maybe you haven't, but if you've been to the kennel or if you've been, if you came to the HRT decoy seminar, you saw the fucking pony dog that we have arc, uh, is 130 pound Malinois and he's not fat and (laughs) God, I love him to death. He's a fantastic, he is a perfect patrol dog except for his size. I love his handler to death. Patrick is fucking awesome, but God bless that dog. He is too big. And He is too fucking big. Everybody wants a big one until you do a you know you do a mile and a half track in a hundred and ten degree street and have to lift his lift his fat ass over a fence. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know there is a longevity side to that too. Um, when they're that big, they like shit wears out, just like people that are overweight. I mean, your knees wear out, your hips wear out. You know, it's not good being that big jumping out of a fucking patrol car because everybody uses Tahoes or Explorers now. And if you're lucky, you have a uh, Durango, but or I'm not a Durango, like a Charger, like it's a little lower to the ground or something. But I mean, you know, dogs that big pose all kinds of problems. Um, and then on the other side, I've seen some rock star dogs that are 45 and 50 pounds that I just like in good conscience, couldn't be like, I'm going to send this dog to a three-time felon that is going to fight with him. And it, there has to be some, there has to be like mass times velocity equals force. It just is what it is. Like it's physics. I mean, it's math and there has to be something behind it. And so I'm kind of with you, like in the 60, 60 to 80 pounds seems to be kind of like the happy medium, Um, you know, and in male versus female, this is what I can tell you. Most females that I see, um, dogs, not handlers, tend to be exceptional dogs because they have to be. Um, I get bid requirements all the time. In fact, I sent out bids I don't know, last week for several dogs. Um, number one, number two on that list for a lot of them was has to be male. I could have the best working females in the world and they wouldn't even look at them, just not even consider them. I don't, even if they were the right size, if, if they met every single requirement outside of that, but so it is what it is. But um, I personally don't have an opinion. One of the scariest patrol dogs I've ever seen uh, is a dog named Glory that we trained that is terrifying. She's an mm-hmm. almost 80 pound female mm-hmm. and just absolutely terrifying. Fantastic patrol dog and would put just about any patrol dog in the country to shame, but she's a female. So it was kind of one of those, 
take it case by case and it's kind of the dog in front of you thing. And, but you know, I mean, all the time, I mean, how many times have you had somebody come to you and say, Oh, I got a great female. And you're like, I bet you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had it. I'm sure it, you do. I have vendors that offer me females and I'm like, I'm sorry guys. It just, because here they don't buy them. I, uh, I'm going to pass. It's funny. I had an agency that was looking into the handler reached out. They were looking for a dog and he insisted to be a female. And I, and I asked him, so just out of curiosity, why a female? And he says, I just like the way they work better. I'm like, huh, okay, whatever. And then it, the whole thing fell through, but um, yeah, I, uh, I just don't get them because they're not, they just don't sell. And to be honest with you, um, Although like special operations use them and the military uses them. As a yeah. I mean, we just had Trent on. I mean, he had Leica, one of the most famous mm-hmm. females in fucking history that, and we had Dave on too with pepper. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one yeah. was Ranger and one was with um, the other unit and they Rangers and one was the other unit. And I mean, both females, both very, very nice dogs. So I mean, real quick when I mentioned Chili, the little dog that I uh, sold, he's, He's about an hour from me and I, I ran into the handler and the handlers uh both there's two handlers at the department one's i think a sergeant um so chili gets a bite recently and they told me the handler is we call him mox his name his last name is mox he's a good dude he said on his warning uh come out or i will release my doggy <laughs> release my doggy, doggy. Yeah. <laughs> i'm like you said doggy because i don't even know why i just said doggy <laughs> so, all right so what we're doing folks is uh ted's reading the questions off facebook i'm reading the ones off of instagram we're just gonna go back and forth um the first one we have uh, den mother underscore canine who's been on the no. podcast yeah long time listener not first time commenter how does van s canine feel about sliding doors in the home is ted summers <laughs> really from the jungle of <laughs> was that madi pradesh <laughs> madi pradesh yeah. I don't even know the fuck that is. So that's Evan. For those yeah, listening, right. we hit him on like I think episode ninety-eight, if I remember right. But um because <laughs> everybody knows that Eric loves sliding doors um on cars. Him and you and Gooseby both love yeah love it when he's the center divider closed in your car. That's all I can say. All right, <laughs> read the next question. <laughs> uh I'll do one of the funny ones and get it out of the way. Uh how is Elite Canine still in business? Boy, that's the million-dollar question, right? I, I don't know. It I, might I, be a million-dollar question. I don't know either. Um, yeah, how, how the fuck? I mean, <laughs> Kevin wanted to know, and he says, good luck answering that one. I'm like, ah, that's a good question. Yeah. I don't know. And the <laughs> thing is, if you – a lot of agencies don't know that the guy is a convicted sex offender, but uh, some do, a lot do, and they still give the guy money. They still yeah. – or uh, he's just a not a good person, and I, I don't get it, but uh, – so the same guy asked the question. Um, he says he has his own opinion, but he wants to know. He has a boss um, that feels that genetically and absolutely, without a doubt, sport dogs and police dogs are 100% different. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> he said so he has- <laughs> when he got promoted, did, did he have a lobotomy? I don't know. Because what, what he doesn't understand, he truly doesn't understand how large u.s vendors get dogs in europe yeah not every dog but they go to sport clubs you jerk off dumbass <laughs> that's how we they do. buy dogs <laughs> off the field dogs that have sport lineage from decades 
they buy those dogs. Those are the dogs that are working the street here. So no wonder you're a fucking supervisor. Like, gosh, I hate them. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, we've had some dogs come over to us that um, were bad sport dogs in the sense that they wouldn't title or they wouldn't title competitively. Um, and the person that sold them was like, you know, it's a nice dog, but um, he's just not for this sport because he's out of sticky or he's this or he's that. And, you know, he's not competitive. He's just, I can't be competitive with him. And I'm like, I don't care. I'll take him. I don't give a shit. And they turned out to be fantastic um, sport dogs. Um, so Kevin basically says, you know, it's basically how they're brought up in the training. And it's 110% true. I mean, I, I, I've worked PSA dogs and Mondo ring dogs that will absolutely bite the fuck out of you with, I, I don't, they'll bite aliens. They don't care. And, you know, have a ton of control because they're operating in that venue. So I fundamentally, we have, we've had several guests on here that have openly said, you know, we, we farm out or we get dogs from, sport clubs under those same things like oh it's too much dog for the handler and or it is going to be a dog that's going to require a ton of work to get them uh ready and compliant for being successful in sport on the sport side um so and you know i can tell you what kind of dogs those are being a psa decoy like when you you know get in one of their asses and the dogs don't want to out they don't want to do all kinds of crazy shit because the decoys are messing with them or whatever it is at the higher levels and psa anyway so, you know, then you're competing against somebody that's equally as talented trainer as you are, but has a dog that's probably a little more balanced in their drives versus defense versus prey. So you're fighting that uphill battle all the time. So I don't necessarily think they're genetically predisposed, but, you know, what makes a good sport dog in terms of nerves and balance of drives and all that stuff also makes a good patrol dog. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the long answer, but. So the next question is a really good one. Um, canine underscore two underscore Argo asked, what is your take on utilizing patrol dogs during civil disturbances, AKA riots? How should they properly be utilized if at all? Yikes. So that's, that's hard. This is a United States question. This is, this is the U S answer. And I know that in Europe um, and in UK and then uh, one of our buddies, Yoris handled the dog. Um, um, she just passed away recently. Yours handled Rhea, um, and she would nuke super ho soccer hooligans all the time. Hmm. It's a lot different over here. So we fundamentally have a, as you know, as law enforcement, every time there's using force, we have to kind of evaluate that through Graham versus Connor. The trick is in a situation where it's a riot or a civil disturbance or whatever you want to label it, um, normally numbers are on the side of law enforcement definitely equipment is and then definitely tactics for the most part and they have so many other resources at their disposal whether it be pepper balls or gas or shields or there's so many other means available that it becomes very um hard to justify the use of a dog to bite people for what amounts to protesting or violently protesting even when you start getting into you know the bullshit that happened with all the riots over the summer where they're tearing buildings up and everything else 
you know, it, as long as those buildings aren't occupied at that point, you know, you're looking at destruction of public property, you may be looking at burglary, and they're all, you know, the seriousness of those offenses definitely can meet the first level, the first prong of Graham. But when you start looking at the second, which is the most important, they don't really pose an overall threat to the other, the rest of the population because they're out there with a bunch of the other assholes. And they don't pose an overt threat to law enforcement because they're not attacking law enforcement overtly. And they're not really sort of trying to, so, you know, when we start evaluating all those factors under Graham, it becomes very, very difficult to justify a bite in a quote unquote riot or a civil disturbance. Um, especially when there's so many other things at, 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 you know, at their disposal, there was a situation in, I think Chicago this summer where, um, the Antifa goofballs uh, basically set up a trap for um, law enforcement. And in that situation, you know, even then and without knowing everything involved, I can't really say yes or no definitively, but you know, you start threatening that second, you start getting into that second prong area where you could pose a significant threat to law enforcement and it becomes an issue. But for the most part, it's a bunch of angry dudes that live in their basement that are throwing rocks and their cops are covered in riot shields and they're covered in several other things. And at that point, you know, people start talking about, well, lethal force in this and lethal force that they start throwing Molotov cocktails and they start, if there's an issue with, with um, firearms or there's a threat of firearms at that point, it's no longer a dog call. Cause I mean, in terms of force. So in, I, I personally believe that it, it, is very hard just justifying that, um, especially on a large department, for sure. Um, I I disagree a little bit. Um, I agree with uh, you can't use a dog to 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 stop people from breaking the windows out of businesses and stuff like that. Um, but if it comes to the point as a cop, we, you can't right, right, yeah, <laughs> civilian do what you need. Um, if it comes to the point where the we're going to have to use force because force is being used against us. I don't see the problem with it. Well, yeah. I think it's better. If I see a, a some Antifa jerk off, pick up a brick and like, he's going to hit one of the guys with it because surprisingly most departments aren't equipped for riots uh, equipment right. wise uh, the way they should be. Um, I, he should be bit. If he's going to pick that up and we're going to arrest him, where you get into a tricky situation is when the shit really falls apart. They start biting and releasing and bite, release and bite, release and bite, release in a madhouse. Now I've never been there. I've never done it. We know for a fact that in, um, in Ferguson, there was a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Lots of bites uh, that happened. Now, uh, I absolutely believe like the, the video of the bike cop getting banged in the back of the head with something. If that guy was a canine guy, he had every right to, to smoke that fool with a, with his dog. If he right. had it. So I do believe it's just the reason why they're not being used is because of perception from. Yep. And they were during, during the riots this summer, there were some bites. I'm in California mm -hmm. and somewhere else. And it caused a huge fucking deal. And I don't understand because, you know, if we're talking about case law, you know, Robinette tells us that dogs is, dogs are not lethal and they had used other methods and they decided and some kid charged the fucking line. He got smoked yeah. and they're like, oh, it was excessive. You're like, well, was it though? If, so, And that's the thing. Were they going to arrest him? 
was it a use of force situation that where the where the dog met the criteria and and followed their procedure you know um using them to so back home in canton we uh have the football hall of fame and every year they kick it off with this uh concert it's a marine corps band type concert right and they kick it off and at the end fireworks and at the end of the year or every year at the end of this there's a mcdonald's right down the street because the um the per, the concert and get together and everything is on the edge of the hood <laughs> and so well, these gangs just go down there and just riot at the mcdonald's and we come in and get the dogs out come out end of problem yeah. 30 30 seconds there's a clear parking lot everyone's gone every single year it happened every single time we went there done end of it um now granted it's a way smaller scale than people are finding but use uses a threat uses a, a people moving tool um i don't see the difference and then a dog being there and a guy shooting somebody straight into the chest with a pepper ball i don't see i don't see where that's a difference so all right we can talk more about that but uh your turn uh let's see so Derek asked us, he was like, what are our favorite scenarios for HRD? Uh, Most of no, he says, he's give us three. Three total? Uh, yeah, out of all of them. Um, I like the uh, vehicle stuff, mm-hmm. I'd say, is one of mine. Um there's one we call uh, Black Hawk Down that I don't run it, but um, I, I really like that one. And um, is the weirdest environmental shit that I find. So that's almost different every single time. Piano, the p- dude, that piano thing. I'm getting one tomorrow. I forgot to tell you. I'm getting a piano for the fun house tomorrow. So <laughs> my mom reached out to some dude. He's got two of them. I'm getting one. So anyways, how about you? I... Um... I think my favorite is Black Hawk Down and then uh, Brown Hole and then um, fucking Stellan are probably yeah, or versions of those. Yeah. Um, yeah, those have been through to know which ones we're talking about. So Yeah, those are um, Black Hawk Down. We don't ever talk about um, ever. But yeah. um, the other two, everybody is familiar, familiar with. Brown Hole is essentially a clearing exercise and a communication drill. And then um, fucking Stellan is a decision making one. But yeah. Um, yeah, those are two, um, where, and ironically enough, every time, most of the time, the ones that I like the most are the ones that re- actually all three of those require something to hand of the handler, um, yeah. a lot. actually some of them require a lot of the handler, but that's where we see the most fun. It's yeah. not the dog. <laughs> it's usually the handler fuck something up. So I did. Um, I also like drum circle because of the oh, yeah. little anal glands and then you throw up. Oh uh, God. And, and then I, I laugh. Dude, so. Yes. That all one right. Made, next. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> The next question from Instagram, Mike Lambert 160 asks, in the private sector, do you see more of a market for drug detection, i.e. schools and businesses, or explosive detection, contracting for major events, sports arenas, or large gatherings? Um, explosives, uh, hands down. In fact, there are large companies, namely, uh, you know, like Vaporwake and, um, you know, AMK9, America, AMK9 and uh, MSA, guy, MSA, you know, are private companies that are dealing with um, a threat to the public. The thing about um, 
private narcotics is that you're fundamentally dealing, I mean, explosives are illegal too, but it's a public safety issue. The thing with narcotics is you're dealing with um, something that is not like overtly like met. Well, that's a bad example. Heroin is not going to blow up and kill a bunch of people. Meth might, but mm. um, heroin or, you know, narcotics in general are not going to, are not an overt danger right then to people around them. Um, whereas, you know, explosives are the thing with narcotics is that, uh, we have a Fourth Amendment question, um, and you're essentially put in a position to be to to deprive somebody of their freedom um, for you know for breaking a law um, that is kind of a definitely all that shit needs to be illegal, but you know there's a lot more dangerous than explosives. Or it's not as dangerous as explosives at the time. So there is a much larger market for private explosives detection than there is private narcotics detection. In fact, um, in Oklahoma, um, our certifying body cleat still does, with much to my disapproval and some other guys, uh, we do private state certification or certification through the state for private um, vendors for for narcotics. And I can't stand it. Um, it's I think it's a terrible idea. And I think that should exclusively be the realm of um, law enforcement. I don't think civilians have any business doing that, but that's just me. Correct. I, I agree. Uh, explosives for sure. And here, here's, I tell you, just on a private sector business side of it, um, every school in the country can get a police canine to come over for free and snip the school. Yeah. Every school. So why would they pay for it? Um, there's... I just don't think that there's a market. I mean, there, I'm sure there are places that do pay or will pay or whatever. It's not enough to sustain a business, not even close. Um, and cause you know, and my whole thing always was, I actually quit doing uh, the last three years, two or three years that I was the head trainer. Um, and can we flat out quit doing school sniffs? Um, because what would happen was every Wednesday, we would, because we would have 15 to 20 dogs there, we would roll into a school that we were asked to come to, roll in, take over, and sniff for drugs, sniff the lockers. But what happens is when the invent, the advent of cell phones, all the kids start texting their parents and telling them they're on lockdown, there's an active shooter, I see them, there's people shot, I hear it, there's pe they all the time, they say there's people shot laying in the hallway. But what the fuck are you talking about? They say it all the time. Dogs barking, maybe they think is gunfire, but th the people will text their kids, will text their parents and tell them there's someone in the building shooting people. They do it all the time. So I, it happened at one of the local schools and my chief flipped out. Like it was my fault. So I said, fuck it. We're done. We're not doing any more. Um, so what we started doing was we tell the school resource officer, do your job. If you get intel that a uh, Johnny Rotten Crotch is um, is selling dope, we'll sneak in one dog, one handler, one dog. Bring him in. Tell us a bank of lockers to sniff. Don't don't tell us which is his locker. We'll run those um, and uh, give us four or five cars out in the parking lot. Just tell us to sniff this group of cars. And if we get hits, we get hits. But, uh, and the other thing, but I told the schools, I said, 
don't ask me to come in and sniff lockers if you're not going to fucking make the kids use the lockers. Uh, we, we did one school and there was a girl. They wanted us to pull everyone out of the classrooms and do all their bags and stuff. Girl had a, a roller bag, a suitcase. In class, she was wearing a Snuggie. In, in, I'm like, what are we doing? All these banks of lockers are empty. If a, guy, if a kid has got a gun or is going to do something, it's in his fucking bag in the classroom that you let take in there. Control that. No bags. Make everything stay in the lockers. Well, maybe we'll come in and sniff lockers because that's where the dope is going to be until we start getting hits and then it'll be on their person. So, But yeah, yeah stay out of that private. We, we used to have uh, private uh, apartment complexes wanted us to come in and do sniffs like in the door frames and then try to search the apartments. Get the fuck out of here. I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not even touching that for nothing. Yeah. I'm not going to mention where this happened, but um, there was a private organization from another state came to, to another state um, and had a contract with a fairly large school district to do searches. And they were just scanning um, in a parking lot and, you know, before we get into the rest of the story, there's a whole difference between administrative law and case law. And like once you're on school property, you're, you know, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy and all that kind of shit. So um, dog alerts on a car um, happened to belong to a senior the kid was 18 years old. It was a Monday morning and he had been hunting with his dad uh, the weekend before um, and left a shotgun shell in his car um, in his truck. They were I don't know what they were hunting. Something that requires shotguns. I don't hunt. So um, they ended up calling the cops. They show up and they try to charge this kid with a felony for bringing ammunition onto school property. Yep. Went through the whole process and the ACLU got involved and sued the state and sued the school district. And the vendor bounced out and was like, oh, not my problem. I, I'm just here to sniff. And so it became like this big back and forth. So um yeah i mean it's a and on top of that the kid was 18 also because he was a senior so it, yeah. it was it, it was a fucking nightmare nothing ended up coming of it once the aclu got involved the school district and the the agency that was involved and the district attorney were like uh this is an honest mistake because uh, this dog was finding was what so here's the trick the state that this was in had a mandatory state certification on narcotics those dogs should only be allowed to find narcotics. There was no narcotics found on the car. He was not known to be a narcotics user, had never been arrested for, you know, had never been suspected of his entire career. But then they also said, oh, the dog can find firearms also. Oh, I'm like, oh, of course, of course they can. So then it became, well, you know, how can the dog be certified to a state or a national body? on an odor that is not part of that national or uh, state or any gut. Well, I mean, there are some, but I mean, we typically don't have narcotics dogs that are also fine guns that are a quote unquote certified. You either have explosive dogs or you have narcotics dogs. And we do that because of the fourth amendment problem mm -hmm. and the public safety problem. So these guys were kind of splitting hairs and it's why the civilians should not be fucking doing it. So if you want to be a civilian, you want to work, Go work for a company that does explosive detection. Go call our buddy Griff. Go work for MSA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, your turn. Uh, let's see here. Uh, we answered the HRD ones. Um, so how often 
are so Brady Smith asked this, and this is a good one. Speaking of Den Mother K9, um, how often are should medical scenarios be part of training and how in depth should they go? How often do handlers work medical scenarios all the way to the point of involving the treatment facility? Are the treatment facilities prepared to receive a working dog at 3 a.m.? I'll, I'll, I'll reverse engineer that. Uh, I have a small sample size where I'm at. Yes, ours is emergency vet. Uh, you call ahead. They're, they're ready for it. Um, when our dog Jethro got shot, it was two something in the morning and they, they handled it. Um, but it's 10 minutes from where it happened to the, to that office. A lot of places don't, um, typically the medical stuff and training doesn't really get done very much. And it, it happens either when something has happened and the guys need to, Oh shit, we need to work on that. They're out of ideas for training. And I'm not saying that medical is, is a bad idea or, or but the trainer would be like, man, we should be doing medical stuff, which they should be, but it's almost always as a, an afterthought. Um, and then, uh, it, I don't know. We we've done medical where it's um, like we had we bought dummies and all that other stuff. I personally liked to send guys to medical training. Yeah, you know, like a den mother canine have one or tactical, you know, veterinary tactical group coming in. Yep, having them come in and do it. Uh, it should be a couple a couple times a year at least. I would say. And, um, but that's the thing with dual purpose dogs. There's so many things to work on and the, the medical, uh, and then when you get new guys come in, they got to know it and they got to learn it, you know, at a minimum, they should be going to the vet's office during their, their canine school and, and learning some stuff and then getting up to date on kit. But, um, I, I just, I think there's so many good experts there that it's so, so much better to send guys to, or bring in an expert. Yeah. And I'll be honest, we don't do it enough. Um, our stuff is very basic and being in the United States, most of our guys are pretty like, are pretty close to, um, like a vet. I mean, relatively close and some basic first aid stuff, um, can save the dog. They're not like we had Evan on Den Mother, um, you know, and then we've had Trinity on from Vet Tech Group, had Trinity and Janice um, from Vet Jack Group. And, you know, they're out in the middle of fucking nowhere and, you know, Haji land. And if a dog gets injured, I mean, it could be 16, 18, 20 hours to get them to somewhere that is able to get them the care they need. So you're doing a lot more, uh, you know, there in terms of life preservation than we are you know driving to the vet's office um and then you know on top of that how how equipped is because even in those specialized military units the handlers themselves are not that's why people like evan and janice are there um they're in standoff positions to take care of those dogs but the handlers kind of provide immediate like triage right then do blood sweeps, find, find chest wounds, whatever else. And, you know, it's, it's one of those, uh, we had a dog, one of my dogs got in Louisiana, got bit by a snake in January or February or something. His head swelled up like a fucking basketball. And, um, you know, the handler got into the vet at two o'clock in the morning and, you know, the handler was texting me and this, that, and the other was going on. 
and we had just been through the HRD down in Ocala uh, with University of Florida guys and the premier like snake bite dog guy uh, is down there. Oh, I can't remember the name, his name off the top of my head. Um, but super informative. And, you know, a lot of times vets are like, oh, it's a, it's an allergic reaction to giving Benadryl and it's not. And so, you know, we were like, don't fucking give him Benadryl unless you know what kind of snake it is and all this other stuff. But Echo, the dog's name's Echo. But he, re- he recovered. He was actually at the HRD in Louisiana. Um, and so, you know, but, you know, the handler did correctly. He, you know, stabilized him. We got out of the car quickly. You know, he kept him calm. He did the things that we normally do. But I think you're right. Sending them and making it a priority as a unit, as there is an admin, to sending them to that type of training um, should be taught by those people, not by fucking, not by me. Right. <laughs> I am not, I am not the person like, I know like first aid for people and I know like basic first aid for dogs. Uh, but I am not the guy that should be teaching that shit. Like that is for sure. So, yeah. Uh, so we, uh, we're going to take a break real quick. Uh, we come back, uh, we'll do some more questions. So uh, don't fast forward through the commercial. We'll be back in a second. Um, and I'm assuming this is an assumption that this person is looking into using a pit for protection <laughs> work would be my guess, but maybe not. I might be wrong on that. Um, I have trained and sold single purpose, everything, uh, shepherds, mouths. I got one in my, a mouth in my kennel now. Um, I've got a GSP, single purpose GSP. I've done Springer's labs. Um, that's it, I think. But, um, and two of the best hunting, nose hunting dogs I've ever even screened were pit bulls and no chance anybody buys them. Nope. No chance. There, I mean, it's not zero, but it's not more than 1%, not, not even more than a 0.1%. There's like a few working. I know there's a, the throwaway dogs lady, she does great work. And there's a lot of people that are getting pit bulls in. Ain't nobody in Ohio buying them. Nobody <laughs> is going to buy for a police department a pit bull to use, no matter how good they are. So you, you have to think as a vendor, you know, if you sold one pity every two years, it's not worth it. Yeah. And I'm not going to get into the public reception side of it, but um, the, I have a friend here in Oklahoma is a canine handler, uh, Joe Chitwood down South of here. He's a listener. He runs a pit bull. Her name's flower. Uh, she's fantastic. She's single purpose. Of dog. course. Yeah. So the trick here is, um, so to answer the question overtly, no, I, I don't care as long as it hunts. Now my department that's another issue. So I have a department right now, that we uh, have a bomb dog going to, and they, and I talked about this on like the first question tonight, that they they mandated that the dog had to be male and had to be a German Shepherd. Has to be a male, has to be German Shepherd, and I had a gangster ass female, and they would like nope female, and it's single purpose bomb work. I mean, who cares, right? Had to be male, had to be a German Shepherd. That was the bid requirement. I could have the best hunting dog in the fucking world and not hunting dog, but like the dog that hunts the best. And it, if it wasn't a male German shepherd, they weren't going to fucking look at it as in the story. So um, I personally, as a trainer, don't care like that hunt is hunt. Like, you know, if they're going to hunt regardless of what it is, like I've like, same thing. I've got, you know, pointers. I've got, I've got that dog we got from Jeremy up here right now. Gizmo that dog is a psycho, that little lab. He's going to be badass. And so um, I don't personally care. Um, that said, 
when most departments come to us for single purpose um, explosives or narcotics, they specify point. I ask them, I now, so I, there's no question. I say, do you want pointy ears or floppy ears? And there's an assumption that if it's single purpose, it's going to be social, right? Like it's not going to just, fucking, it's not a patrol dog. So, um, you know, if they're floppy ears and I can use pointers, I can use whatever. Then I say, you know, is there a size requirement? Um, I've seen some Jack Russell Terriers and we interviewed somebody. Um, I don't remember who it was, but they were talking about Lars, the little dog um, from the Lackland program that was an explosive dog. It was Jack Russell Terrier. And he like, you know, he was all over the internet. It was Jack Russell Terrier. It was right. It was an MWD. Um but I personally don't care. Um, you know, it hunt is hunt, drive is drive. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, and that's one of those questions. It is driven by who is writing the check. If somebody's yeah. writing me a check and they're like, I'm going to pay you, but I want this. I'm like, okay, I mean, yeah. I'll find it. I mean, then, <laughs> you know, it kind of is what it is, unfortunately. So, yeah. All right. RPD underscore canine underscore Logan asks, what is your go-to drill slash exercise to bridge training scenario to the street reality and bite work? Hmm. There's a couple. Um, I do the human orientation drills um, with hidden equipment and to kind of like shore up some of the skills. Um, And in that I use very, very, light decoy work i mean very not very reactive like you know the decoy is not very reactive to the dog um and then we use a lot of passive drills um where dogs bite decoys uh not necessarily dead checks but very very passive very very um guys that are very indifferent to the dog um and then we'll do some other ones where uh to kind of see where the dog is at um, equipment fixation wise on the human orientation side, we'll do some fend off drills to check some commitment. And then um, Eric and I see this all the time. The one thing that normally washes dogs, if it's not a weird target, instead of targeting as part of this too, like a weird target presentation um, is environmental. Um, So you'll have dogs that just are monsters targeting monsters with whatever else but all of a sudden we have their first bite happens to be some shithead in ankle deep water and a drain pipe and they're like oh shit i've never bit anybody in the water in the dark in a drain pipe under a road and they're like oh he didn't engage and you're like oh well i mean so um environmental there's not like a single exercise but it's always like uh we're constantly pushing environmental stuff um down the line to make sure because that's usually i mean i i'm sure eric's gonna say the same thing but that's usually where we have issues as environmentals yeah i my gauge so if i got a dog that's um new or in in training or a dog that comes to the training group or whatever my gauge where i see whether a dog and i've only been proven wrong once is how they make their entries in a building search or an area search away from the handler uh, off leash. What is their entry into the room to the bite look like? What's it like? Is it committed? Is it bullshit? Is it, um, you know, you have a guy standing there in a bite suit, maybe with his back to the, to the thing with an elbow out or anything like that. That dog should slaughter that dude. When he comes in there full speed, blast him. If it's anything less than that, I almost always see uh, failures on the street there. Um, it's, it's always been my 
gauge. I'm like, gee, I don't know if this dog's going to do it because he, we've been doing all this bite work. He kills it. He does all, this, he just went in there and real kind of soft mouthed it, you know, and, or sharked it. And, um, I always see problems with that. And, um, we talk, we talk about this at HRD all the time, the importance of vehicle extractions, um, going through the window with purpose, blasting the guy in there, staying on the bite when they come out of the car has so many different things with environmental and, and courage and commitment from the dog and everything like that. That's also a pretty good indication. If your dog goes into the car and then doesn't bite the decoy, which we see that a lot, they'll try to push their way out or they're letting go from the seat to the ground. They got, they got some problems and environmental problems that, that might be able to overcome or, but if your dog jumps into the car and completely goes into avoidance in there, you might struggle yeah you know and it comes down to i mean i feel like we should reverse engineer this question because you know what do we normally what do I, I or both of us have seen as failures and bites and uh one is equipment fixation two is targeting and third is environmental like every failed bite that happens can fall into one of those three categories i feel like the environmental ones are big because, you know, once we take the dog, especially young dogs, where context is not built around building announcements. And that's why everybody like I use show me your hands as the bike command for, at the kennel. Um, so there's all these things that are going on. The dogs aren't neutral backing guys. So the only time that they're around backing guys is when they're on an actual call. And they're like, what the fuck are these other people around for? Like, what are you doing here? What? And then the first time the dog gets crept up on like when he's actually biting somebody should not be on an actual bite like the whole like the whole process and this is part of the reason hrd does what we do and why you do and what we do at each of our kennels so you know i think in broad strokes like it falls into those three categories equipment fixation lack of context or you know like one of those things or um environmental so all right your turn Got a few more to go uh yeah so this is one i think we've talked about i don't know if we've done this one before or not um so when we train a green dog for drug detection drug detection it's very specific do we start with one other at a time or do we make a cocktail of all sense <laughs> and this guy says the cocktail makes sense is there's always it's stored together in the same crown royal bag hmm. no lie detected if you have a crown yeah. royal bag that's pc yeah right <laughs> um so <laughs> i in the beginning of my time as a trainer, I'm a box guy. I use the box method. Like, uh, I don't know. We asked Kenny about it, if he invented it. He said he learned it at Lackland. But I've it's been handed down. I, I use it. I have good success with it. I always did the cocktail method, either the dope odors or the explosives. In Ohio, there's seven odors that you certify on for explosives. Um, so I've always done the cocktail. And I have really good success with it however in because of the uh, advent of podcast and listening to podcasts and talking to cameron ford and listen to his and other podcasts and reading the science of it i no longer do the um, cocktail on the explosives i still do it in the in the dope if if i got a lot of time like a green dog that isn't going anywhere yet, isn't for sale. And I'm just going to start working them up. I might do it one at a time, you know, if I got the time, but if I'm getting a dog ready for handler school for dope, I, I cocktail the odors, especially now that we're not doing marijuana and there's just 
three odors. Because um, nobody gives a fuck if it creates anything weird. In dope, I, I got to tell you guys, the, the whole obsession with drug detection is starting to fall away. Prosecutors don't freaking care. That's a whole different topic. But, but the science has shown on the explosive odor um, that it can create different scents that have nothing to do with anything that you're looking for. So I'm like, man, I'll just do them one at a time. Although when I did a cocktail, I was, I, I, I taught them the process with the boxes and everything. And then I was super particular when I started splitting the odors up, doing them one at a time to make sure that I could tell that the dog understood the odor. And if the dog looked like he was struggling on something, say maybe ammonium nitrate or something, we, we worked it more. And I've brought that up to people and they're like, you should have just started one at a time in the beginning. You probably spent the same amount of time. Um, I don't know if I agree with that, but, uh, but on the dope side, I'm still mostly cocktailing. Yeah. God, this question is going to generate a shit ton of shit talking. So, cause everybody's right and everybody's different. We personally at the kennel, we use individual odors all the time uh, on everything. Um, I don't combine odors. We don't store them together. Like they're not, exposed they're not cross-contaminated they're not anything that's just the way we've always done it i also am not super quote-unquote clean like i don't worry about human odor um in fact i will touch shit all the time mm-hmm. um we will touch stuff and um you know a lot of these dogs too are dual purpose dogs so they're taught to find human odor anyway so you would have to be in dipshit to think that they can't smell human odor on a fucking car door and they can't differentiate that between heroin and human scent because they're taught to find human scent and it's a contextual argument or it's a contextual conversation but this goes down a rabbit hole of what is odor and what is scent and then you know we've had david out of on before um you know we've had ellie zussman on about what odor is and what odor is not and how that shit like i just train dogs to find shit and fight people bite people like that's my job that other shit is way outside of my thing uh, cameron is really good at that i use individual odors because for me, it's easier to see, like you said, if a dog is struggling on something and it's easier to isolate things down the line. And when we go to certify, because Oklahoma has a mandatory state certification, you are certified on individual odors. Um, and say certain national certifications are too. And OPATA, I'm sure, is still individual odors also. So yep. um, I like to keep it as clean as possible. Now, that said, you know, in training, I have put odors together um in maintenance training but i typically like to keep it as clean as possible um in the beginning phases because in our in like if you're watching this um at some point we're going to have a video series come out with our new project where i talk about the dutch boxes so in our dutch boxes we have hot odor but then also i have distractor odors from day one so there's like cat food and like air fresheners and blank cotton balls and gloves and all kinds of crazy shit and all the other ones mm-hmm. so they're not like blank blank like they have novel odor there but it's not target odor so um i like to i've i don't want dogs looking for novel odor i want them looking for target odor so from day one i try and make it as clean as possible like i understand there's several things out here that are very unique but this is the one i want you to pay attention to so um and part of me is ocd and i just it makes me feel better so as right. so so i'm gonna i'm gonna <laughs> do two questions the first one i'll answer real quick and then the second one i'll throw it to you the the first one is uh from a guy named Moe's that i know 
This question is for pet dogs. How much exercise to sustain a healthy, medium, or large-sized dog? How much should be agility and how much running, sprinting, etc.? So real quick, I use agility with pet dogs and, and police dogs too, but to build confidence. That's what I use it for. I don't really use it so much for muscle building or, um, or exercise as much as it is a mental, you know, forward aggression solves problems. That's what I use agility for. Sprints I use for, um, and we'll talk about it real quick with police dogs. I use it just, you know, get a dog tired out a little bit. If it's, if, if it's a weekend, he's going to be in the kennel a lot. I'll run the shit out of him so that he can sleep a little bit. But this is the big mistake guys make on the police side is police work is a marathon and they don't do enough um, like endurance, endurance building with their dogs. Yeah. They just throw chuck it and they're like, yeah, man, I worked him out and everything like that. I'm like, yeah, he ran 30 yards like five times, six times. And, um, and that was it. That doesn't equate to a, two mile track it doesn't so you got to make sure you guys are getting those dogs out there i don't care if it's on a treadmill if you put them on a treadmill for for an hour um the treadmill does wonders for dogs so and then the next question is is it ever too late to implement marker training for a working dog a decent question no it's not um and how you do that is various means and various things. So like we interviewed Justin uh, Rigney, uh, we had Dick Stahl on who are both very, very accomplished marker trainers. Um, so there's a little bit of a misconception about what marker training is and we're literally marking, that's why it's called marker training. We're marking a behavior in time um, and we're either punishing it or rewarding it because you can have a negative mark too. So. Um, I, I don't believe it is ever too late. And we talked a little bit with Justin about how to do that, about how to introduce it. Um, I start with food, especially with dual purpose dogs that are just gnarly prey animals. Um, if I get a ball out most of the time, they're not going to fucking pay attention. And it's difficult to teach them anything in that, um, in that environment or that level of drive. So if I remove prey um, and use a different motivator food, it becomes much easier to charge or to, to wait or however you want to put it to, to make that command, to make that mark valuable that I use. Yes. Y E S um, for the people that are Patreon members. You saw the video of me working pepper uh, where I converted her from a direct reward to an indirect reward, explosive dog, or I started her direct reward. And then because of how she was imprinted, which I didn't do. Um, and then moved her to an indirect reward, but I did it with a marker. So um, she would have obedience and odor and I would mark her. I would say pepper. Yes. And that was a recall. Um, so, you know, it, it's not ever too late, but you kind of have to have a plan in mind of one, how you're going to use it, um, whether it be for bite work and um, where it becomes really valuable for, for patrol dogs is drive capping. So if we understand the dog understands the pattern of command behavior, compliance, reward. Now that bridge, the difference between the reward and the time, you can build duration, distance, and distraction, but you can release the dog and you can build capping. That's where it becomes extremely valuable. Um, and you can mark those individual behaviors and you can pair it with a negative mark for an e-collar remote too, which is what we do a lot of times with um, some of the patrol dogs, but I, I don't think it's ever too late to do it. And whether 
people hear this or not, even if they're some dickhead master trainer from the nineties, they all use fucking marker training. They just don't know it. Some of them just not good at it, which is fine. You know, you don't have to be good at it. It's no big deal, but you're always marking behaviors, whether they be good or bad, um, some way, whether you're consistent or not is another issue, but, um, I don't think it's ever too late. And I prefer it. Um, my, here's my hiccup though. So what's that dude that's up near you? Um, Jonathan Mary does a really good job with indirect yeah. reward narcotic does great fucking work. Uh, and that's how pepper was done. The trick with that is those dogs have to go to handlers that are very, very good with timing. And that requires a lot of maintenance. And yeah. most canine handlers are police officers, not fucking dog trainers. So their timing usually isn't as good as a trainer and their willingness and the number of reps needed to do it ain't that good and ain't that high. So that's why we do direct reward with a toy or, and then variable reward down the line. So, you know, we can continue to build that behavior, but that, that is much easier to maintain throughout the dogs of career than a marked behavior with an indirect reward. Yeah. Shout out to Mary canine services. John's a good dude. We got yeah, one of sure. his dogs one of his dogs in the um, association uh, that he had trained and we, we got him for a handler. He's awesome. Freaking dog's awesome. So, yeah. All right. Um, see where we're at. Uh, somebody asked if we were going to be releasing no show socks with inappropriately appropriate sayings on them. You never know. I mean, we're always probably crap, but uh, <laughs> um, I'm sure we're going to make it happen. Underscore wolf mother underscore said with protection sport becoming rapidly popular. Do you see any current or potential drawbacks to this? Personally, my fear is a fundamental change in breeding stock practices, non-working breeders, unfamiliar with the traits, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, should be focused on selected for anatomy, physiology, temperament, and drive. An influx of discarded dogs, inexperienced handlers, bite off more than they can chew, or a shift in public perception. There's a lot of words here. Shift mm -hmm. in a public perception to a stigma slash label that will be difficult to reverse or undo once established by a handful of bad eggs. There's a lot there. So um, sports have been popular for a long time um, in the rest of the world and in the United States. Um, there has been an influx and there's always been an influx. And, you know, you hear the old timers talk about the seventies and the eighties and the nineties, then the two thousands. And then, you know, everybody has the generation where this happened and this breed got ruined and this, that, and the other, and this is going to cause this to be ruined and whatever else. So um, the first kind of like branch of that is one, the AKC, I think fundamentally is causing a huge problem because and it's it's endemic in the united states a lot of the rest of the world you don't hear them talk about the word they don't use the term purebred right mm -hmm. like it's a fucking dog um you know here you know we hear at all the time you see shit people selling dogs and it's a purebred this or purebred that and i'm like or i've seen purebred doodle i'm like there's no such fucking thing as a purebred doodle like it's mm -hmm. a it's a mutt uh, they're super cool like they don't shed and they're you know like puppies their entire life but um so, you know, one is that question. Um, two is, you know, when we start looking at sport and AKC or whatever else, there's a utility aspect to it too, right? Like I've argued forever that for a dog to show in the herding group at the AKC, that the motherfucker should be able to herd. Like he should have a utility title before they have a confirmation title. Mm -hmm. um, I just 
firmly believe that, right? Same thing with like whatever the dog, you know, whatever the breed standard is meant for, it should do that first before it can get a confirmation title. And because I, this kind of question goes directly at the root of quote unquote, what has ruined the German shepherd, right? You know, their hips are bad and all this other bullshit because of the way that the standard went for confirmations versus working ability. So, uh, and then there's the whole issue of, you know, the working, like the, uh, the uh the breed standard titles in germany where the dogs aren't really tested but they do like some like minimal bite work and it's fucking atrocious but they're protection dogs Mm -hmm. so i think at its core sports are sports right we have to have something to judge which is why there's fucking rules which is why it's written down right you can take one end and go to ipo or ipg or whatever the hell it's called now it's changed the name so many times right and leave it to the germans to suck the fun out of everything so it's got like (laughs) what nine thousand pages and they count the fucking steps and so it's an exercise in precision right so that fundamentally is an exercise in how good you are as a trainer training to a very prescribed standard spelled out in multiple languages right that's what that's for it's not meant to test anything else go to the other end of the spectrum with psa and psa is all about control um not necessarily precision even though the precision is judged it's not judged as heavily but in that respect you have to kind of evaluate what we're judging and what we're looking at um, or what the judges are, not me. I'm fucking decoy. I'm looking at the dog. So, you know, we're, they're looking at control. They're looking at the ability to handle the animal um, versus, you know, in IGP, the dog is kind of on autopilot a lot of the time. And that's not a knock against it. It's just kind of, it is what it is. We just had PSA nationals uh, over in Arkansas last weekend. Um, I unfortunately didn't get to go, but um, we had to go to, they had a good attendance. Um, there were a couple of people, I think Bradshaw got his three, his third three, on an extremely sport. Yeah. Uh, one of the kids that was at the HRD in St. or in Salt Lake city, Max uh, went down and competed in threes. Um, so, you know, we, I don't think that it's a, like it's either good or bad. The The fact remains the sport is where the working, and this kind of goes back to one of the questions we talked about earlier. Sport is where the working stock comes from. Uh, for most of the working dogs, whether it be like sporting dogs, like, you know, hunting breeds or whatever versus the herding breeds, which we, you know, Malinois, Dutchies and and German Shepherds. So the sports are invaluable for that. Um, And you will not find a majority of police dogs that will be trained to the level of control and precision um, that uh, a sport dog is. And a lot of that is because the police dogs aren't judged in that arena that way. Right. and because of that, there requires a lot of variability and it requires a ton of control on the handler's part, which is what a majority of the hand of the handling and training revolves around for and case law revolves around for police work is control. Uh, we talk about Kerr versus West Palm Beach all the time, and that fundamentally establishes what the elements of handler control are. So um, as far as the public perception goes, I just don't fucking care. I don't care what Karen thinks. I don't care what um PETA thinks I don't give a shit what any of those people think I don't care it's the fucking United States now I'm talking about the United States and England and y'all fucking have you guys have your neighbors over there and you have to deal with your neighbors I don't the United States we do what we want so if I want my dog to bite people in bite suits and I want that to be as a hobby that's fine I do it and if they don't like it they don't have to watch I don't give a shit what people think and there's not there is nothing that they can do about it there's just not there is just fundamentally not anything that they can legislatively do about it. 
they can't even decide a national speed limit. You're going to tell me that they're going to prevent us from using e-collars and letting us bite dog, blood, letting us bite people and bite suit equipment. No, it's not going to fucking happen. It's the United States. We don't do that shit. Just, and again, if there's a problem with public perception, wait a week. Yeah. It'll go on to something else. That's the age that we're living in now. Yeah. Um, did you, did you ask that? No, you did. I did. Okay. Your turn. Yeah. It's my turn. Isn't it? Um, we kind of talked about this one. Um, so, and this will probably be um, our last one. Actually, we'll probably do one more after this. So, I Colby, got a really good one, yeah. Okay, good. So, Colby Fox says, they have a dog in his unit who doesn't give a shit about food. Um, and it's absolutely nuts over a toy. And it's causing issues in trying to do obedience. Tries to buy the handler when he isn't rewarded in time. Uh, when he wants to be, you know, the whole, the, the same shit over and over again. Uh, any way to work on obedience with these issues? Read that again. So basically they have a dog that doesn't care about food and mm -hmm. is absolutely nuts over a toy. And when the dog isn't rewarded in time during obedience, he starts tagging the handler and right. again. Um, How do they work on it? So what I would do is um, we used to do all my obedience. Well, and this goes to another question, but you know, when I first took over, the obedience was yank and crank. And then I started doing more uh, toy reward. And then where we were um, using the toy a, a lot during the during the session. And then I got sick of fucking fighting some dogs over their toy, to be honest with you. So then we started using food. But again, and I haven't seen too many dogs that won't at, the, at that level that we're selecting for police work that won't work for food. But my thing is for any dogs that don't work for food and if they're biting you over that if you use the removal of pressure the pressure and the removal of pressure the removal being the reward you won't need to use a toy as much you could you can reward it with um praise you could throw a toy here and there um but I would use pressure. I would start with um, with the pressure on before the command and then the pressure off is the first reward. The second reward could be petting, good boy. Um, and at the end, the very last one, maybe give them a toy. But um, anytime I get a dog fearful or otherwise or dogs that don't like to work for food, if they're going to try to eat me because I didn't fucking give them their toy when they thought I should have, the toy's gone. And it's uh, yeah. the removal of pressure as the reward. And that kind of starts treading into some deep water on the Nipopo stuff with mm -hmm. Rigney and uh, Bart Villon and Pat Stu and those guys that are really good practitioners at that, um, which requires consistency and a very, very good, like open line of communication with the dog. Like they got to understand what's going on. And if they're that high, tightly wound, there is a definite protocol for introducing that whole setup to them. But, you know, the, the premise is, releasing of the pressure and then marking the behavior, which we just talked about market behaving is you're double marking by releasing pressure and then rewarding the correct behavior. So um, it is very, that's a long conversation that we can't have right now. But, yeah. I have a real quick, I have a shepherd in my, uh, down in my basement right now. She's just a pet dog stuff, but she will do anything, all the work for the removal of pressure and petting. She will not take food. Um, all right, so here's the last one. No, no, I got So do this one, and I got the last oh. one. I got one that I just saw that is definitely we need to do. 
Okay, uh, cool. I just hit a button. Um, this is a good question. Uh, where are we at? Okay, this is Billy Girardi, 1979 on Instagram. Sorry for those who we didn't get to your questions. We talk a lot. So, you know, we'd have a three hour episode. But uh, looking back at when you started into the working dog world, cool. what rookie mistakes did you make that actually benefited you? and taught you an important lesson you use today in your career and life? Poor oh, man. Um, somebody's always better. <laughs> mm -hmm. Somebody's always smarter or somebody's always better than me. That, that um, I learned that the hard way. So, uh, and now I keep that in mind all the time. There is always somebody more talented, better looking, uh, a better trainer, somebody. There is always somebody better. Um, so you know, I think, I don't know if that was a rookie mistake or not. I think the rookie mistake was assuming that once you hit a certain level that um, like you've learned everything or you've, you know, I, I, I don't need to, I don't have to worry about other people anymore. No, that's wrong. <laughs> Incorrect. Right. So, yeah. My rookie mistake as a handler was uh, definitely in regards to tracking and not, not trusting the dog and trying to think, I'll think of, ahead of the dog and things like that, that I definitely have been able to use as a trainer to kind of um, unfuck some guys with things they're doing. Plus it, it puts context. Like, listen, I was, a, I tell everybody, I'm a very good tracking dog trainer. I sucked as a handler of tracking dogs. Terrible. Cause I made all the mistakes. It took until later on when I became a trainer that I got better at that. But the main thing as far as that I use in my career and life with working dogs was, um, just because it's always been done doesn't mean it was correct and that there isn't a better way. Um, and, and I alluded to this earlier. So when I got into canine, all we did was yank and crank, right? Choke chain on the field for an hour, crank, 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 crank at the end, play for five minutes with a toy. So when I took over as trainer, that's what we did for the first couple classes. And I was like, eventually I was like, this just gotta be a better way. I can't spend. And it was, literally for expediency. I, I did not want to spend an hour to hour and a half every morning out on the obedience field, especially because the dogs hated it. And uh, so then I started evolving. I sent, I sent guys, just knock that thing out of the way. I sent guys to training to learn better ways. There has to be better ways, right? Bring it back. And um and show me and prove to me. And then we just kept evolving and evolving and evolving. And what the way I train now looks nothing like the way I trained five years ago or, or uh, back in 2011 when I took over as trainer or 05 when I started as a handler. And it's, um, and I look at that in everything there, if there's a better way, I show me and I'll probably go with it. Yeah. So, right, so you have one. Yep. Last one. Uh, Jacob O'Neill asked, uh, when it comes to apprehension work, how do we divide it up? How much suit, how much sleeve, how much muzzle, how much civil, et cetera. Uh, and then we already answered, he has a second one about, do we even specific tests to ensure the dog will engage? But um, yeah, so I have a. So when I first got into canine, we were a USPCA agency and um, we didn't do it for our certification, but it was definitely the roots of our training. And it was um, uh, how to graduate the academy, the canine academy, you had to pass uh, uh, um, their their um, IPO one, I think, not IPO, uh, PD one, I think it was called. Yeah. 
you had to pass that um, numbers wise. But anyways, that was only sleeves and scratch pants. That was it. Sleeves. Everything was sleeve oriented. Um, I will use a sleeve in the development of a brand new green dog in a progression that leads to ultimately to biting on the suit um, or, or a hidden sleeve, biting on a hidden sleeve. Uh, I know some people start right at the suit and that's cool. Um, once I get the dog onto the bite suit, it's probably, yeah, like 90%, 80% of what I do is, is using a bite suit. And then the rest is mostly hidden sleeve and then some muzzle work. Um, but no more sleeves. Once we're off of it, we're off of it. Um, at HRD, we, there's one thing that we do that, that we have a sleeve in and we don't do it at every one. It requires a high elevated place and we only do the sleeve for safety. That's it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say it depends on the dog. Um, I have dogs that are working now that have never seen a hard sleeve in their life. Um, they never will. You can still have a hard sleeve in their face and they will bite you in the leg. Um, and they don't view it as a prey item. So um, I kind of want to address like the first part of this and then I'll talk about the second part of it. So the first part of it is when we're raising these dogs and like you said, we're making them, taking them from greed to finish, you know, we have to worry about targeting and we have to worry about proper gripping. Um, we have to worry about proper gripping for longevity of teeth and making sure that and records we can show that they're not tearing people up and that, you know, there's any number and equipment and there's all these things why proper gripping behavior is um, and we've talked about it on the podcast before and Patreon, I talk about it at HRDs, like we talk about it all the time. So proper targeting and proper gripping is an extremely important portion of maintaining a patrol dog for its entire life, which equipment you use is sort of up to you. Um, the equipment is there for us, not for the dog. Um, and I'll talk about the muzzle in a second. But um, the you do a hidden building, you do a building search with a hidden sleeve and it works like once and you know we're asking a dog to smell a gram of cocaine and we don't think they can't smell a fucking suit or a sleeve um and i kind of am at the point where they're gonna bite it they're not um and most of that is contacts and is built uh we use those rubber arms and we use a couple of other tricks to make sure what i do want to say is that teaching an out is extremely important you cannot teach a dog to out unless they bite so there is a group of trainers um, that believe that you should only use muzzle work and only do muzzle training ever, forever and ever, and only do muzzle work all the time. Uh, one of the guys um, is semi-well-known. He's from Denver. The other guy is from uh, just outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, um, and his dogs have had some massive fucking failures. So, it stands to reason that, you know, the same people that are they're espousing how smart these dogs are, then simultaneously turn around and put a piece of leather on their face. And they seem to think that that equates as the same drive satiation as a bite. And it's not. It's just fucking not. And, you know, we breed these dogs where they're bred, selected, and raised and trained to bite people and bite stuff. And if you think putting them in a muzzle is the same effect on satiating that drive as a bite you're fucking wrong and there are dogs missing bites in arkansas for that fucking reason and i'm sure outside of denver too where goofball is so 
and, and if that's the case, like I can, I can tell you right now that that is not the case. I've seen blue healers that will fuck you up sideways in a muzzle that will put any patrol dog or NPC to shame, but they wouldn't bite you if they had to, they just wouldn't. It's another piece of equipment, like a leash, like a harness, whatever it is. Most of the dogs in my patrol group have bites. I don't need to prove that they bite. They bite people all the time. I'll use a muzzle because it's 117 degrees outside and I don't want to put a fucking bite suit on. <laughs> I mean, it's great. It gets hot in Oklahoma. So the other thing too, when we do muzzle work, we still have to maintain proper targeting. Um, so there are some dogs that don't need muzzle work. I, and the other portion of this too, that I just don't, like when you, when you say it, how I'm about to say it, people are like, oh, it makes a whole lot of sense. So the argument is if a dog misses a bite, you put him in a muzzle and it frustrates him, right? It frustrates him to the point that he will bite. And I'm like, that just doesn't make fucking sense to me because at that point, the dog continues to strike, 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 and you're getting feedback from the decoy. And then you still have all of these problems with passive engagements. You still have all these problems with incorrect targeting. You still are not solving the fundamental problem. And which is where we started. This is that forward aggression solves problems. And the way that that gets fixed is by the dog actually engaging. Preventing them from engaging does not solve a non-engagement problem. I, I don't know any other way to fucking say that. And I know guys that just swear by it up and down and they swear by it all day on Facebook. And the, the number of dogs that, that is successful on is not that large. And you know, you'll do one thing and then they assume the correlation cause is causality. And just because it happens with one dog doesn't make it happen over and over and over again. And I have seen dogs that absolutely will fuck you up in a muzzle and have broken people's collarbones, but will not bite for real. And no matter what you do. So um, muzzle is an extremely important part of the whole process without a doubt, because it prevents them from biting. So I use them for SWAT stuff. We use them for, all kinds of things, but to ensure that a dog will engage. No, I, I mean, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard that if, if you think a dog will engage with a muzzle and then simultaneously, not sure they may come in and like nip, but they're like, Oh fuck all of a sudden, then what do I do? So it, it, it is just, it, it is, I, I have, sh and in fact, I've, I've tempted to do an entire thing on this on, on Patreon for it like showing how that's defeated. And, but then that involves me putting a dog in a situation where I know that they're going to fail. And I can guarantee you, if you are one of those guys that says it, it works all the time, I will show you a hundred percent of the time, a few exercises, the dogs will fail in a muzzle and then will simultaneously come back into the building and will not bite it. They just fucking won't bites are bites. You cannot teach an out without biting. You cannot teach proper grip without biting because it involves fucking biting. And <laughs> like it does. Like if that's the case, put them in the fucking muzzle and let them play with a ball. Like you do, do you think that a dog continues to chase a ball around the backyard and push a jolly ball around with a muzzle on his face because it satiates his drive? No, it doesn't because it's not the same fucking thing. It's just not. And that's it. They're actually going insane from it. Yes, they do. So... <laughs> Without all right, that. I like this, dude. I like it. I think it's uh, as long as we get this all logistically figured out, I'm gonna like this uh, Zoom. Our next one will be so you're if you're watching this, it's right around the 23rd of November, yeah. and um, hopefully, then our next one, which will be on on December 3rd, we'll have a guest. So there'll be three of us, hopefully, and hopefully, yeah. And yeah. 
hopefully we don't find that one dinosaur who's like <laughs> on a flip I don't phone. have a computer, <laughs> I have a laptop. I don't have a got to call him on a fucking landline. I have a flip phone <laughs> with no camera. <laughs> yeah. You know. So that that's possible, but uh yeah. You know, all of our parents you know are up there with their little phone, so hopefully we can get everybody. True story. Yeah. All right, buddy. I like it. Are we putting this on the Patreon on the 12th? We're going to do the video on there. Yeah, we'll put the video up. That'd be awesome. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. For those of you who didn't know what we look like, this is it. You're Um, impressed, I know. I have a right now a very round face. I still (laughs) say Ted looks like the drummer from uh, the Muppets. True story. Uh, when 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 it's not that's not trimmed up. When his beard's trimmed. Up. <laughs> True story. It is not trimmed. Yeah. I didn't. So. I stayed at the house today. So, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Outside of that, I'm we'll see everybody soon. All right. Bye bye. See you.